This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here at Asha Torah in the old city of Jerusalem overlooking the Temple Mount. So this week is the week of Purim, and Purim is a, is a super mysterious holiday. And it, it seems like year after year, at least I can tell you in Israel, it seems to be celebrated bigger by the more secular people than, than the observant people. The observant people obviously are celebrating Purim. I mean, we, like, we take every holiday super seriously. Um, but, I mean, there's a lot of holidays we're taking seriously that the secular people kind of ignore. But what's happened with Purim is, is there's been a whole, like, like, almost like a... It used to be like some secular Israelis celebrated Purim, but it was maybe more of their kids dressed up for school. And... Um, but over, what's happened over the last, like, decade, maybe 12 years, maybe 15 years, what's happened is that the secular Israelis have kind of taken on Purim almost bigger, well, maybe definitely bigger, <laughs> bigger than the observant community. The, they've really gone for it big time. And, uh, and the observant communities, you would, I would say, has had, uh, their Purims have gotten more contained, um, if anything, but just because the, the it seems that the further the further the observant community goes, the more uh, strict they seem to be, and so so you get more and more people trying to even make Purim stricter, which is really strange because Purim was just like the last holiday in the world to be having anyone telling anyone what to do. But but uh, it definitely seems to be getting squelched a bit in the very observant community, and the uh, uh, except for our house, obviously. Ours is more off the Richter year by year, and uh, but what's happened is the the secular Israelis have like really gone gone for it, and they're they're going big time. And we're talking in the you know I, I don't know how much at this point. And Ravit, what would you say in the, what would you say in the thousands uh, just in our area where we live in town, like tens of thousands, tens probably tens of thousands, I suppose. And it's, uh, but it's like tens of thousands of people going, going full on heavy duty Purim celebrations in the center of town in, uh, whether it's the Shuk or Nachlaot and Yisim Bachar, it's like, it's, uh, anyway, but it's become this like really big thing. So what's it all about? God should give me strength to explain this. Everything I'm saying is uh, is uh, today is uh, is inspired by Rabbi Nussan Mi Breslev, uh, who's the Talmud of. Uh, Rabbi Nachman Mebreslav. And uh, I just can say that's about the only time in any shir I've given in the last 27 years that I've ever said that. But uh, I'm not even, I'm not even close to Breslav. I'm way too happy to be Breslav. <laughs> anyway, no, we're Carliners. We're Carliners. Carliners are known for screaming their prayers. We scream our prayers. Yeah, and I only scream my prayers because I'm too ADHD to be at a quiet prayer service without, like, climbing the walls. Uh, but if you get me screaming, like, I totally lock on, lock on to the experience. Yeah, everyone's welcome, by the way. You ever want to come scream with me? Yeah. <laughs> kind of like that. Okay, so, so it's like this. The Jews went into exile for 70 years. Shivim Shana, but the word Shana means also to sleep, Lishon, it's the root of sleeping. And what happened is the Jews fell asleep after the 70th year. They, now they had of course mistimed the, the redemption, because the Jews were supposed to go into the Babylonian exile for 70 years. Babylonian, there was, Babylon was, there was a coup d'etat, a, a bloodless coup, a takeover. Uh, that so Babylon ultimately became Persia, and as we all know, Ahasuerus was the king of the Persian Empire, and it was a gigantic empire. But what happened was the Jews kind of felt, were falling asleep all those years, 
And the 70 years is also this is like sleep. Now the Torah is understood in 70 different angles. There's like, it's called Shivim Panim La Torah, the 70 faces of the Torah, which is interesting, the face and the, and the uh, masks and stuff like that. But the, there's 70 faces to Torah. There's 70 interpretations for every word of the Torah. And, and what happens is when the seven, if you have a 70-year exile or 70 faces of Torah go into exile, so then people lose their connection. You see, for someone raised observant, let's say, who went off the path of Judaism, for me, someone like me to help them get, reignite their connection, to like rekindle the flame, not, not a big deal, not difficult, not difficult at all. And uh, we can get in there and rekindle the flames uh, for, for their relationship with God. But when someone's actually, um, there's such a thing as like losing that connection. That's the idea of the 70 is the seven years of sleep or losing your connection to all 70 ways of Torah to the point where a person's like, where Torah just doesn't mean anything to them anymore. And that's, uh, that would, the great example of that is if you ever met secular Israelis who like, the ones who didn't, weren't raised very observant, weren't raised observant at all, and their parents also weren't raised observant. So it's like already two generations of like gone from the path of Torah. So, that's a very, very deep sleep, and it's a very difficult thing to, to reignite their, their fire for God. It's hard to ignite those people, because they're, they're really asleep, and it, it's hard to wake them up from that sleep. But one of, this, this, is what, uh, this is what Rabbi Nachman shared, is that, is that the way you wake up the way you wake up sleeping souls is ancient stories. Ancient stories wake up the sleepers. You got to tell them ancient stories. And which is kind of weird, telling them ancient stories. So we're going to have to understand what that means to tell them ancient stories. But if you tell them ancient stories, they wake up from their sleep. Now, you'll notice that that this story, <laughs> the Purim story, is just a story. And there's nothing holy going on. God's name isn't mentioned. There's nothing about, you know, there's something about prayer. Like at one point the Jews like called to prayer and fasting and prayer. So there's definitely, that's pretty holy. But other than that, there's not a lot of mention of anything holy going on in that book. It's just an ancient story. It's a tale. And it's a tale that's told throughout all the generations. And that ancient story is a story to wake up the sleeping people. Now, it probably serves less to wake up someone who's already very observant because, because they're already pretty awake. But, but the very sleeping person, the person who's truly asleep, this story serves to wake them up. It also relates very much to Israel. Israel's the place where it wakes you up because Israel's a place of the ancient stories. Israel, if you, um, you know, the, the Megillah is read uh, here in Jerusalem, which is connected to the ancient city of Jerusalem, you know, like right out this window is is the is this ancient place, and there's also other ancient cities in Israel, like Akko is an ancient city. They also read on the same day as Jerusalem, and and uh, oh, where else? There's somewhere else in Israel that, read, that reads where Sfat I think reads on on this day as well. I think right Sfat reads both days. Uh, maybe it only reads on, on the second day. But the, um, anyway, but the, these ancient stories wake people up. The ancient stories wake people up. Now, what is it about this story that wakes people up? So what wakes people up is the hiddenness of God inside of all of our lives. Because in the end, the story boils down to your story. You know, and you're living out a narrative. You're living out a story of your own life right now. You're inside a story. And this is, you're the star inside the story of your own life. And what's happening in the story is things, things are just taking place, you know. You're, you don't necessarily see God in it. It's just, you know, you went here, then you went there, and these are your siblings, and this is where you were born, and... and and, you know, everything just seems quite connected to the natural world. So you're just inside your own little uh, narrative. We're all inside our narratives. And 
once in a while you see how your particular story, how your personal story, how it all ties in ultimately that, that there was a there's someone behind this whole story that's been orchestrating your story. That there's an orchestrator to the story. So in the Purim story, it all is just going on. It's like this, it all seems like happenstance the entire time. But ultimately, there, we, we, what we get is that the Jews are going to have this like tremendous salvation at, as a result of all these innuendos, all these different things that took place. How do I pause a live feed? No, there's no pause for live feed. I don't know why, I just feel like pausing the live feed right now. Adam works in the Adam's on. Yeah. You could stop and then play. Sorry, I'm just gonna take a little break. There's, there's, you know what, I'm having an issue right now. My issue is that I feel like I feel like I'm heading somewhere redundant. And uh, you know the word redundant? Repetitive. I feel like I'm heading somewhere redundant. And if you notice, if you come to my classes, we don't do redundant (laughs) at all. So what's really bothering me is I have to teach Purim in a way that's never been taught before. But I stand up here and I teach like five, six, seven, eight classes on Purim every day. Sorry, every year. Without any redundancy. And this year's can't be redundant. And so I felt like I was going towards something that might have been redundant. And I'm just going to go there anyway, and we're going to see what takes place. What word in the Megillah is the hidden word for God throughout the Megillah? Esther. No, not Esther. What? Melech. Very good. Very good. Melech is the hidden word for God throughout the Megillah. Anytime the Megillah just says the word Melech, it means God. Now, what does Melech mean? What does the actual word Melech mean? Meaning besides king. Because there's a lot of ways to rule. What does the word Melech mean in Judaism? What does it mean? Like, someone want to give it a try? What what does Melech mean? King, ruler, okay. What does it mean? I mean, every time you make a bracha, you say, God's the Melech HaOlam, the king of the universe, the ruler of the universe, yeah. It's an abbreviation for, like, the head down. Oh, nice. Yeah, what's the connection? Moach, Lev, Kaved? Moach, Lev, Kaved, is that what you're going to say? That's cool. Melech, Moach, Lev, Kaved. Moach's your brain, and Lev is your emotions, and the Kaved's like your instincts. The Kaved, oh, how do you say Kaved? Liver? Your liver is like your instincts. Because you can make God the king over, over your thoughts and over your heart and over your instincts. Here's the idea. Ready? The word Melech in Hebrew, when you put it together, especially with Haolam, the word Olam means hidden. It means the, the, the hidden God. I'm sorry, the hidden king. So it's very interesting that God's hidden inside the Megillah with the word Melech. Whenever it says Melech without the word Achashverosh, it's talking about God. Okay? He's the hidden king. But whenever you make a bracha, you always call him Melech HaOlam. Now that means king of the universe, but it also means the hidden king. Now why is the word Olam the word for hidden? Anyone know? How can God create a can God create a world separate than himself? Can God create a separate world? Like there's God, okay? Before God created the world, there's just God. God precedes the world. So if there's only God, can God create a world that he's not? Think about it. If all there was was God, whatever he creates the world out of is gonna be made of what? Of himself. So the only way that God can create the world separate from himself would be obviously to, what? He has to hide himself. And that's why the word world and hidden are the same exact word. 
Now, this is a very important point for, I'm going to say stuff that may, may go over your heads for the next minute, but I'll go back to making sense in a second. The um, Gentiles' version of God, Goyim's Gentile version of God throughout the history, was to, um, they used the word, they used God for the mysteries of life, because they didn't understand anything. I mean, they didn't understand gravity, and they didn't understand our solar system, and they didn't understand molecules, and they didn't, un- they didn't understand anything. They, science is like a recent thing, like the, the way we know science today, the modern science is very recent. They didn't know anything. So they just, God was the, God filled all question marks about our world, our misunderstood and not understood world. That was where, they, that was what they used for God. Now, here's the crazy thing. As soon as the scientific methods came and they started understanding their world, they got rid of God, because who needs God now? We already understand the world. The word for world in Hebrew is the word for hidden. Because we know that the only way there can be a world is if God hides himself. That's the only way. The only way there can be a world is if God hides himself. So the very word world exists only in the hiding of God. And so the more you understand of the world, the more you're understanding the precision and accuracy that God creates, meaning we love science. Because God was never the answer to the mystery of the world. That was never what God was to the Jews. That was to the Gentiles. God's not the answer to the mystery of all the things we didn't understand. That's how Gentiles saw God. He just, he was the answer to everything not understood. Our relationship with God is from prophecy. From thousands of years ago. A prophetic, you know, tradition. Not to mention a national prophecy at Sinai. But we already had it from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We already had a prophetic tradition. So we knew, the Jews even in Egypt knew who God was. We weren't doing idolatry in Egypt. We knew there was God. We knew it from the prophetic traditions coming from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then we came out and had a national prophecy where the world, the world actually disappeared. You know, when the Jews were at Mount Sinai, they're, they're, they were not seeing the physical world. Because when you're seeing, when you're getting prophecy, you're not seeing what's in front of your face. When the prophecy ended, like Sinai came back, they were able to see Sinai again. Also, this is something a lot of people don't understand that if you had a video camera, like today, a modern video camera on a tripod at Mount Sinai, what would you have seen? What would you see if you watched that video afterwards? Anyone know the answer? What? Um, that's a good answer, but I'm talking about the Taurus says the mountain's on fire, everything's shaking, and the, there's a giant pillar of smoke coming off the mountain, and, and it was like everything was Ashan, Kulo Ashan. Kulo Ashan. What would you have seen? Right, so no, you would have seen nothing. Absolutely nothing. You would have seen a bunch of Jews just going like... <laughs> That's all. That's all you'd see. Like the front, the front ground would be a bunch of Jews going like, duck, 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 duck. and then, and then just a mountain like doing nothing, doing nothing. And a lot of people don't know this. You have to learn Kabbalah books to, you have to learn more Kabbalah to know these things. But I mean, if uh, if all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, uh, what's your name again? Yosi. Yosi. If Yosi got prophecy right now, would we see anything? If he got it, would we see anything? No. Would we hear anything? No. We would neither see nor hear nothing. And the same thing in Mount Sinai. And also, if we listen to the recording, would we hear, you know, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt. Would we hear that on the video afterwards? No, it's prophecy. It was full-on prophecy. Pretty strange, right? Yeah, what that mean? What that means is that the that the nations of the world they they just they knew something happened there. <laughs> you know, they don't they don't know what happened there. 
but obviously the descendant. Yeah, no, no, they didn't hear anything. That, that's not what that means. What it means is the nations of the world, like, were like, it, like instinctually knew something big just took place. They didn't know what it was. No content. No nothing. And certainly no sound. There was no sound. Yeah. I mean, if the if I'm saying the Jews had no sound, Kolchikain, they didn't have no sound. Meaning, all the sound that we heard at Sinai was prophetic. It was in prophecy. It's pretty freaky to think about. You ever thought about that before? We all saw it as like, you know, this amazing, like, Hollywood production. And even our sages say that everybody heard the Ten Commandments differently. So the ten things we say on Mizmor David Havu Lashem Elim, we say that in Kabbalat Shabbat. That's the ten different... Those are the ten different things people heard. You know, how, right? Kol Hashem, Kol Hashem Alamayim, that's Chesed. People who are more Chesed personalities heard it that way. Kol Hashem Bakoyach, that's the Gevura personalities. Kol Hashem Bahadal, that's the Tiferes personalities. If you don't know what I'm talking about with the Spheros and personalities, you can look up my classes online for the uh, ten Spheros of personality. And the three Havus, Havu Lashem and Havu Lashem Kavod, Havu Lashem Kavod Shmoy, those are Chachma Bin and Das personalities. They heard, like, really high stuff. Those would be like, like those are the Roche Shifte Kav, like the, the, the leaders hearing, hearing stuff from a, from a Chabad, like Chachma Bin Das perspective. Those would have been, like, the Manhigim would have heard it like that. That, um, thank you. You start to realize that. I thought I'd shut that off and do it again. So, it's really convenient for this. The, um, that's about the only use I've found for my Apple Watch so far is getting my phone, getting my live videos not to get interrupted by phone calls. So, um, what is this word Melech? Because it's a hidden king. God is the hidden king. Imagine a king of a regular king, like a king Basarvadam, a king of flesh and blood, who got so tired of being this, you know, the king, and he just like wants to be a commoner. Like, can I just be a commoner? And, and of course his staff is like, no, you cannot be a commoner. And his advisors are like, please stop talking like that. And finally, one of the advisors who was very smart saw that the king was getting depressed because he's this, he just wants to like, just wants to get a beer with somebody, you know, like, just wants to relax. Well, I always got to play king. So what happened is, uh, this is a very porn dictator, I think. So the, so the king, one of the advisors, a genius advisor, had a great idea. Let's just bring in a makeup crew and a, and a costume crew. And we're just going to dress you up like a commoner. Give the guy a day to be a commoner. Like, what's the big deal? And like, anyway, we're having a major event at the, at the castle tomorrow. That way we can keep an eye on him. So, you know, they spoke amongst the advisors. Like, we'll keep an eye on him, too, because who knows what's with our king. So, they, um, so they, they dressed him up, made him up. I mean, just totally changed everything. Gave him a beard and, like, he looked like a... Look a bit like a popper, you know, like, uh, they just made him look like a commoner. And it was perfect. There was no way to know he was the king at all. Changed his age by like two decades. I mean, they like, they perfectly set up the king, you know, to be just kind of this old guy with a beard and a, you know, a robe and kind of long hair and stuff. And it was great, you know. And they, anyway, so they sent him out to the party. King doesn't come at the beginning of the party. The party goes on for like an hour or two, and then and then finally, you know, out comes the king. So he's got a good hour or two to mingle. So the king goes out to his own party, which wasn't exactly what he had in mind, but okay, he'll take what he can get. So he's hanging around the party, and he's walking around, and all the people are mingling and everything, and he decides, well, wanted to get that, that beer, you know. So he goes over to the bar, and they're at the bar, a bunch of people hanging out. And they're all laughing and laughing. And he wants to see what's so funny. Turns out there's one guy who's particularly drunk who is, he's holding his wine goblet. And he's just making fun of the king the whole time. He's like, the king's an idiot. And everyone's like, bah. And like, you know, the king, he's paying no attention to all this wine we're drinking. They're like, bah. 
like the, the king's an imbecile. Blah. King's ignorant. Blah. King doesn't know what the world is going on in his own kingdom. Blah. Everyone's laughing. And so he's right next to the guy. He had no idea that's what he was going to be hearing. And, you know, the guy's already got his arm around him. And you're like, the king's a lunatic. Everyone's like, blah. You know, the king is missing. You know, who knows, if I, who knows who this king is, you know. Anyway, the king's like, he's like falling apart. He's, he's livid. Like, what? He's ready to kill this guy. But meanwhile, he can't, Paul, he can't like fall out of his role. So he's, he's like, just kind of doing, he's realizes he better get away from this bar. He's going to kill somebody. So, so he goes to the, he goes to the, the food bar there. And there at the food bar, he finds this guy, you know, like a commoner in a robe, big pockets. And he's like taking whole trays of like, of like hors d'oeuvres. He's just like sliding them into his pocket. And then the silver serving spoon <laughs> throws that in as well. And the king's like, uh, what's up? What are you doing with all that food? And he's like, well, I'm going to take it home. And he's like, what's with the silver spoon? And he's like, well, you think the king notices these things? Like, and the king's rich. You know, he'll get another spoon, won't he? You know? And the king's just like, now he's just kind of standing there like, here's the bar over there. He's got the thief over here. And he starts looking around this big room of people. They were dancing, the band. And, and he just realizes that he is like, he's, he is winning the number one most ignored being ever. Anyway, he gets tapped on the shoulder as he's standing there in puzzlement. And, and it's one of his advisors says, uh, Your Highness... It's time to greet the people, so please come back to get out of your makeup and all this costume of yours. And the king's just despondent. He's despondent. And he they put him in his royal garments and he's like dragging his feet and he just all he wants to do is kill everybody and and uh, and he's really upset. And all this time he had always loved his commoners, and he thought like they loved him too. And uh, anyway, so finally they blow the trumpets. All bow as the king comes to greet his subjects. And everyone bows on their faces and the king comes out in his royal garment, standing up, you know, the steps. And and then the drunkard from the bar goes up on one knee and says, Long live the king! And everyone's like, Long live the king! This is the Melech HaOlam. This is the hidden king. He's hiding. And the reason he's hiding is because he loves us. He's trying to give us some space. I've always made it my goal as a parent to give my kids lots of space. There's enough to be afraid of out there. They don't need me adding things to be afraid of. Let them go feel the world. Let them feel the edges. Touch the edge here, touch the edge there. It hurts when you hit edges. <laughs> you bump into stuff. It hurts a little bit, but you start to understand the geography of the world. You start to touch the edge of life and see where things are. You, you start to understand your, your world and where you, how you can move around it. That's the kind of king God is. God's the kind of king that lets you lets you move around a bit, get your feel for things. Meanwhile, he's really a king, though. Because can any of you breathe right now without the king saying, time to breathe? Can you move your arm up or down without God saying, move your arm up or down? Can your heart beat without God beating it? God's beating your heart into motion right now. None of this happens. I mean, think about it, everybody. The whole world, is. these are all just the garments of the king that we're in. Because if there, all there was was God, well, what did God use to create the world? If all there was was himself, what did he use to create the world? Himself. So the whole entire thing is just the garments of the king. 
but the king's hidden inside the garments. So n- this is the kind of king that's so empowered that you can't even blink your eyes right now without the king blinking them for you, yet giving you the sense that it's you blinking them. Giving you an incredible, incredible, gigantic trajectory of free will to the most evil, to like the highest sublime choices you can make. Like you can do the most evil. You could kill someone right now. I mean, we'd never let you get away with it in here. But, uh, but I mean, we would prevent you. But, you know, if you were fast enough, maybe you could take someone out. <laughs> maybe, with your, maybe with your iPhone cable or something, you know. But uh, we wouldn't let you do that. But, the, but you, you are capable of a giant trajectory of action. And yet you can't move them. You can't even blink your eyes without God saying so. This is a God that's so beyond our comprehension, we could never, ever, ever understand it. And just look in your own life. I mean, I know I do this a lot, but everyone please raise your hand if you ever... By the way, I'm expecting every single person to raise their hand in this room. Raise your hand if you ever... If you ever did a wrong thing in your life. (laughs) Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up if God allowed you to pull that off. Keep your hands up if he even had to arrange it because you can't even breathe without him arranging things. Okay, you can put your hands down. Raise your hands again if you learned lessons that kept you away from that kind of behavior afterwards. Keep your hand, raise your hand up if you, having done the wrong thing, you bumped into enough edges because <laughs> you bump into a lot of stuff when you do the wrong things. It just, God's just created such an amazing world. How, like, you just bump into a lot of stuff when you do the wrong things. When you do the right things, like, you start threading needles. Like, you just shoot right through holes, and the needle threads beautifully. When you do the wrong things, you bump into a lot of stuff. Okay, raise your hands if, if, if it was good for you. Even though it was a stupid thing, you'd never do it again, but it was good for you in the end. It's all the same people. You understand that, and don't forget, God's outside of time, so none of this... Whatever you did wrong, like you're probably you're probably going like, hey, boy, like, oh, those were some minutes we should erase. They never even happened. When it comes to God, God's not in time. God's not part of time and space. And all of it's God because everything's the garments of the King. We're all inside its garments. We're inside the God created the world out of Himself. None of that even took place. Now, should you do tshuva for it? Yeah, because it does. Your thought, your thought, speech, and actions, your, it's called the makshava dibramase, um, it wears your, your thoughts are the garments of the soul, and your speech is the garments of the soul, and your actions are the garments of your soul. So your soul actually wears stuff. Amazing outfit, by the way. Yeah? So your, 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 your soul wears those garments, and there's like the great dry cleaner of the sky, the great dry cleaner in the sky is when you die. It's a place called Gehenna, where you get dry cleaned. <laughs> not a lot of fun. Not a lot of fun. But nothing you... It's not you. It's just your garments. It's your garments. It's stuff that cle- kind of clings to you. And you need to... You need like to go through this like kind of uh, static cling experience of like getting off, off the stuff that's clinging to you. And by the way, none of you are, are going to go there because you're all going to do teshuva before you die, which is what Purim's all about. Because Purim's when the... It's Megillat Esther. It's the revelation of the hidden. It's the greatest moment of teshuva the whole year of where you realize that the king has been inside the ancient story and you've been sleeping. The kings in the ancient story, and you've been sleeping all these years. And when you wake up on Purim, you suddenly realize that that you've been you've been bound up in an intimate relationship that that is so much more intimate than the wedding and married life that you dream of. 
it is like about like a gazillion, a godzillion times more intimate than your marriage that you all dream of true intimacy, true safety, true, true just being able to be completely without your guard up and to be held fully by another being. This is, that your, that's all of your dream, you realize, in your life, is to have that with a person. So this is a godzillion times more intimate than that. And so you may already be feeling it without it being Purim, because today is not Purim. And you could miss everything you're feeling right now. Everyone, raise your hand if you're feeling a little something about this that I've been talking about. Have you been feeling this class a little bit? You're feeling it? Okay, you should be feeling it. If you're not feeling it, you're, you, you're like, you think you're in like some other Torah class, because my classes are not intellectual classes. When I study Torah, that's intellectual. But those aren't the classes I teach. When I'm learning Gemara or Mishnah or learning those things, then I'm, I'm in the other parts of Torah. Those are the instructional parts of Torah. There's two parts of Torah. There's what's called Limudei Ratzon Hashem. That's the study of God's will. And then there's Limudei Hashem, which is what we're doing today, is the study of Hashem. Limudei Ratzon Hashem is what they do in yeshivas and sims, where you learn halacha, and you learn gemara, and you learn all the things that God wants. That's what they do there. Limudei Hashem is where you study from our more secret oral traditions of the, of the actual being you're in a relationship with. Limudei Hashem is the intimate stuff. That's the intimacy stuff. Limudei Ratzon Hashem is to make sure you don't mess up the intimacy. I mean, think about in marriage. What, you, what do you want in your marriage? You want the intimacy or you want the, the rules that you follow, the do's and don't do's of marriage so that, that don't mess up intimacy? Which one are you interested in, the intimacy or the rules? Which one? In marriage, what do you want? You want the intimacy, but there are do's and don'ts in every relationship. But every relationship, not just intimate relationships, just the boss and employees, got, there's rules there. Every single relationship has rules. The more intimate the relationship, the more the rules. That's why someone who's an executive in a company knows, knows you know, they're, they're privy to info that's like, you know, way more intimate to that company. And they therefore have compliance, compliancy rules that no one on the floor of an Apple store has to deal with. They don't have that level of compliancy. They don't, it doesn't matter that much. It's not that intimate. Marriage comes with the most rules because it's the most infinite, intimate. And with only the exception of relationship with God, which comes with extremes amounts, extreme amount of rules because that's where the most intimacy is. But sadly, the information of Limudei Hashem, like the study of God himself, is uh, left for the Kabbalists. And so everyone just, everyone just stuck with do's and don'ts all the time without the intimacy. And so many people feel like, they feel like the relationship with God is like, is like meat and potatoes and someone forgot the gravy. You know, it's like, where's the soup? Where's the wetness? Where's the connectivity? Because it's all about do's and don'ts. Do's and don'ts and don'ts and, and do's is Judaism to so many Jews. And you want to hear something funny. What do you think is a bigger body of information? The do's and don'ts of Judaism or the Kabbalah? The study of God. Which one has which one has more? If you were to write it all out, it's all written out at this point, pretty much. Which one would fill more space? Like, let's just say we stack this room. You know, we put little uh, 
what do you call those wood things? Pallets on the floor because you can't put Torah on the floor. But what if we put pallets in the floor of this room? Which one would fill more? The Ratzon Hashem or the, or the Kabbalistic uh, study of God? The desire, what God wants or the intimacy? Which one more? So you ready for this? I, 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 it's, so it's multiple, multiple times more. The Limudei uh, Hashem, multiple times more. I'll explain why. You'll understand in two seconds. But you ready for this? You'll understand, it, especially with this. Tell me, do you think there's like any random detail in all of the, does, the Ratzon Hashem? Is there anything random about it? Let's say, um, is there any, I'll ask you this, is there anything random about me not doing something my wife really doesn't like? Is there something random about that? Or is it probably connected to some aspect of her? What do you think? It's just kind of random or it's connected to something about her? It's probably connected to some aspect of her. Rectified or unrectified, but it's probably connected to some inner thing going on with her that uniquely being married to her requires me to be more careful there. You got that? So what do you think, all the details, like the thousands of halachas, like in the Rambam, leave a toward to count how many halachas there are in the Rambam, which is going through the whole 613 hyperlinks. And there's 613 hyperlinks. The Rambam lists 55,000 laws. Do you think even one of those laws is not directly connected to the inner intimate place of spirituality, connection with the Creator? You think there's any random ones? You think there are any that just aren't connected to it? They're all connected to it. Every single one of them is connected to it. And so it would basically work like this, that if I told you one halacha, it would take me about, a, with all its detail, let's say it would take me about 45 seconds to give you a halacha with all its details. How long would it take me to explain the Kabbalistic importance of those details? <laughs> it would take time. It wouldn't take that much time, depending on the one it was, you know. Like, for example, like in Judaism, you're, let's say you're not allowed to, uh, I mean, we could really choose anything, but... Tying the shoes. Tying the shoes is not a halacha. Yeah. And there's many things listed in the Shulchan Aruch that are not halachas, but they are, and when, when they're listed in Shulchan Aruch, it makes you think of it as halacha, and by the way, it can turn to halacha, but someone needs a gun for it to turn to halacha. Yeah. But they're not actual halachas. They're, uh, I don't know how to explain it exactly, because it's not exactly minhag either. <laughs> the, uh, what halachas are is, halachas are the, when you, when you have the 613 commandments, so how you do them are the halachas. How you do those are the halachas. But tying your left shoe first before your right shoe is not, connected to any mitzvah whatsoever in the entire Torah, not connected. So it's, so it's not a specific halacha. Uh, there's, there's many things that the Shulchan Aruch brings that are not connected necessarily to anything. Uh, that's, that's a halacha. And there are many of them are Kabbalistically related, but if you skip them, okay, you wouldn't have that Kabbalistic advantage. That advantage. Uh, one of the most, one of the most um, extreme one of the most extreme examples of the Shulchan Aruch not stating halacha is, uh, is in uh, the intimacy of husband and wife is the is like like a whole giant list, none of which is halacha, none of which is halacha, and uh, and it's very interesting that the Rama for the Ashkenazim, just in case the Ashkenazim thought it was halacha, like comes in there and just says, by the way, none of that long list of things that you might have heard in a Hasan Kala class has anything to do with halacha. And he, like, comes straight out and just says it, just in case Ashkenazim, like, would have thought that that was actual halacha. Because yeah, he just doesn't want people feeling terribly guilty, um, you know, living a life of guilt. Or, or the opposite of guilt is they, they try to keep all those halachas and just live their li- the rest of their lives fantasizing about what they'd actually want to happen. And uh, so the, the Ramah comes in to, like, save the day right there. The Sephardim, even though they follow the Shulchan Aruch, they rely on the Rambam there. The Rambam makes it real clear that none of that is halacha.
Anyway. Somebody's saying that tying the shoes according to Kabbalah would be linked to Tefillin. Yeah, good job. Good job, yeah. The reason we tie the left shoe first is it's connected to our Tefillin, which we'll be putting on later. Okay, so I have a quiz for the guy who wrote that. Joel Gross. Oh, Yaley. Um, <laughs> Yaley, question for you. And you're not allowed to look it up. Meaning, it's just a trivia, uh, a trivia um, challenge. Is what if he's a lefty and he ties his tefillin on the right foot? Does he tie his right <laughs> shoe first? That's that's the truth. Anyone know the answer? Yes. <laughs> you got a fifty percent chance. And why do women have to tie the left shoe first if they're not putting on tefillin? No, the Kabbalistic reason has to do with art to fill in. Yeah. He says you keep it on the left. Keep it on the left? He probably knows. And, uh, and uh, what do you do if you have uh, Velcro shoelaces? <laughs> left or right? So, leave it to me. I'm, like, not OCD about most things, but if I, if I can do it, I'll do it. So, I actually, if I have Velcro, I do the left side. Like, my mountain bike shoes are Velcro. So I actually do type, do my left shoe first. Here's a great one. What do you do when you're switching out of your shoes into your Crocs? Which shoe are you supposed to take off first? Anyone know which one? Yeah, very good. The left. You're supposed to take your left shoe off first. This is all Kabbalistic fun stuff, but you're supposed to take your left shoe off first. Maybe the rabbi knows this one. Oh, by the way, rabbi, do you know if a, a lefty ties his right shoe first? Whoa, Yaley, you missed it. Because this is like the master. This is uh, Rabbi Ellis is here who like, he knows this kind of stuff. You're a lefty. So yeah, you, you actually, you tie the right, you put on the right shoe, tie the right shoe. So here's another question. Take off your left shoe first, right? But what if you're not going to step on the floor? Like some people won't step on the floor. I won't step on floors in general. Just because I'm, you know, I'm freaked out by mikvahs and and fungus and stuff. Yeah. So, so I'll take my left shoe off. But, right, you take your left foot out first. Now you got to put it somewhere. How are you not going to put it in your left crock? And now you put the left foot into a shoe first. This is like one of these things that like keeps me up at night. Nice. This girl's got all the solutions. Okay. Once I see Rabbi Ellis, that means it's four or after. What time is it? After. <laughs> so um, we went nicely deep in this class. I'm really happy that I paused a minute to just see where to go, and I decided to go where I went. Um, I'll just finish with a quick muscle. I know we already did one, but I'll finish with a quick muscle. Is no, you know what? I'm going to save this muscle. It's a, it's just an amazing muscle, but I realized there's a much better version of it that would take too much time. So let's just conclude this class, and and that is that we're we're all inside the story. An ancient an ancient story like the story of Purim wakes us up, and. What is it about Purim Day that wakes it up? Because we all woke up in this class, and it's not Purim for another five days. So if you're outside of Jerusalem, another four days. Like, what wakes us up about Purim? So the answer is everything. You read a book called The Revelation of the Hidden. You have to drink so much that you can't even, like, you don't even know what's going on anymore. So, meaning your whole version of reality called physicality that you thought was reality is no longer so useful. And so you're going to have to rely on what's inside the garments, which is the king. 
you have to give money to everyone who asks for it. Money is one of the main ways we try to hold on to the illusion of life. That's like people's number one hardest thing to give up is money. You have to give to everybody. You have to find people you've had issues with because you were being petty and thought this world was real and you have to give mishloch monos. And you have to use a messenger because that person might have issues with you and it's just better someone else delivers it so that they can like do some thinking about themselves and how they have their issues with you. And like, gee, aren't those issues a joke now? You have to give matanas levyonim, because people who are real levyonim, people who are super destitute are the realest people in the world. And people with money are generally, the more money you have, the faker you get. And I know some pretty real people with a lot of money, but no offense to them, especially because many of them are my students, but I'm unimpressed. I'm just unimpressed. If there's anyone suffering more than anyone I know, it's the people with the money. You have to, you have to look at some impoverished guy, a destitute guy, and stare him right in the eyes and say, this is me. This is me. Because we're all one. And give them that money because we're just all connected. Purim is the day where the whole entire day is designed to, to recognize that there's a king inside your story. And he's just such an awesome king because he gives you all the space in the world. Much like my children. My children were raised with plenty of space. Let them go feel the edge. Feel it. Obviously, you know, I'm, I'm watching from above. God's also watching from above. He's making sure you're not going to get into too many troubles. And I'm also watching my kids from above. But I want them to feel their worlds so that they know how, how, to, how to live in it. Because this is their world. I'm not going to steal that from them. I'm certainly not going to hold love like a gun over their heads and make them scared of everything. May we all be blessed to have the most awesome Purim this year, ever. Amen. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.